Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're going to continue with our Cultivate series today. Uh, we've been working through the fruit of the Spirit. Today is kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Um, I'm going to mostly skip just FYI. I'm going to skip goodness mostly, not because it's not important, but because we're going to spend a lot of time on kindness and some time on faithfulness. And um, we could be here for four or five hours if you wanted me to go through all of them, but I think 30 minutes is more what you're aiming for. So we're going to do that. Let's just get started with Galatians 5, the, the scripture we've been reading throughout this entire series. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So that gives us a reset. That's where we are. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Today we are doing uh, essentially kindness and faithfulness. When we consider kindness and faithfulness, we dig in and what we actually find mostly is selflessness, which is kind of unique. I mean, love, when it's evidenced, is usually selfless, but joy, you don't really have to think about, you know, joy, you have it and then you overflow with it. And anything about patience, patience is is selfless, but in a different way, you kind of need it really deeply inside of you. And kindness and faithfulness, in in a lot of ways, are some of the more outfacing of the fruit. They're also rooted in uh, authenticity, which is to say this, I can fake joy, and you may never know. It's harder to fake kindness, and it's almost impossible to fake faithfulness, because you either are or you aren't. Kindness has been a, a funny one for me in the last couple of years. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is actually uh, spend time with you when you are in difficult seasons. And so the privilege that I have is when someone is sick in our community, or when someone's in the hospital, when someone's at home and they got a new diagnosis, whatever that is, I get to go and, and be with them in that moment. And that's one of the great privileges of what I get to do. And when COVID uh, landed in our world, I was no longer invited into those spaces. The hospital won't let me in. And, and so we had numerous people in our community who went through really difficult things, and the closest I could get was to go outside and pray in the parking lot or send a nice text. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but it, it doesn't quite communicate genuine care the way that sitting by a hospital bedside does or sitting with loved ones in the waiting room. I can't really fake it in that scenario. So I can send you all the nice text messages that I want, and I can put as many prayer hand emojis at the end of it to let you know I'm praying for you. But you have no way of knowing if that's obligation or if that's true kindness. I bet he heard about it, and he just, oh, he added a fourth prayer hand emoji? Oh, gosh, here we go. You don't know. And yet, when we're in the room together, you can look in someone's eyes, and and I don't know a single person who can't look in someone else's eyes and know whether this is obligation or true kindness. You know oh, this person is here with me versus this person thinks they have to be here with me. It's sort of undeniable. And that's the beauty of, of kindness is it's, it's undeniable. I would say it's unmistakable. I think true kindness is actually irresistible. I think that's why the Scripture says that kindness leads to repentance. Romans 2.4, do you presume the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We, we know that. We've heard that. Kindness leads to repentance. 
I think it leads to repentance because it's irresistible. It's undeniable. It's unmistakable. When you see true kindness on display, you know it. And it has this way of sort of disarming us and diffusing a situation. It's beautiful. God's kindness is His undeniable and selfless mercy. It is what turns us from the way we were going, from the ways of death. It's what turns us and compels us and invites us into a way of life. That's why we get into goodness. That's why we begin to practice faithfulness is because kindness turns us from the way we were going and invites us into something so much better. I want to give you the context of that that Romans passage. It's judgment, actually. Paul is talking about judgment. He's talking about condemnation. He's talking about really judgmental hearts and the way that we carry ourselves. And we're going to read the whole thing in uh, two through four in the message. It's a little bit easier to kind of tackle that way, and it's more in our language. So Dwight, put that up in in Romans 2, 2 through 4. Paul would write it this way. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. God is not so easily diverted. He He sees through all such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and coming down hard on you. Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he would just let you off the hook? I love this. Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. And in kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. God is kind, but he's not soft. He's not hugging you into life change. Kindness is this radical undeniable, irresistible force of mercy and grace that compels us to turn the other direction. And what Paul is saying, in in some sense, is that we get hung up and we lose out on kindness. We end up in the place of condemnation and judgment. We walk through the world just judging everything we see because we're living in a world where we have shame and we have brokenness. And if we can just point the finger at enough other people, we think maybe it'll distract God from looking into us. And then we actually, if we thought about it, we'd go, that's silly. I don't actually think God wouldn't still see me. And so then what are we really doing? We're actually just distracting ourselves. If I can just keep the focus on other people's brokenness, I don't have time to look at my own. And yet the scripture says, kindness takes us by the hand and leads us into radical life change. How? Kindness erases shame and guilt. We live in a shame culture, a guilt culture and a shame culture. We actually just call it cancel culture at this point. But that's just shame is all that is. And Paul would suggest that it's all a smokescreen, a way to cast moral judgment on others and distract the world from our own brokenness. So if you're living with lots of shame and guilt, it's possible. I should say this slower so you don't miss this. If you are living with a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, it is possible that you are not receiving God's kindness. It isn't that he is not dispensing it. He is dispensing it. It's possible you are not receiving it because kindness is going to erase the shame and guilt of your life. Our world seems to think these days that shame will correct people. Now, there's neurological evidence. There's psychological evidence. There's all kinds of evidence that this doesn't actually work, that shame doesn't actually create behavior change. And this goes in all kinds of directions. Deterrence is not a real thing. Um, 
it just doesn't work. It never works for people. There's all kinds of studies on how deterrence works in the, in the modern world. And whether it's um, with a child or with death row or with nuclear, it just doesn't, it's not a deterrent. Shame and guilt and fear don't change people's hearts. And, and we, we think, well, yeah, that's, that's a theological idea. Shame and guilt and fear don't change people's hearts. But in the real world, it does. And then you look at the studies and you read the articles and you see what people have done the research on and you go, actually, it probably, it probably doesn't. This is uh, evident in the case of Alexi McCammond. I don't know if you've, I've, I've never heard this name. I subscribed to uh, the writer Malcolm Gladwell. I subscribed to his newsletter. In a recent newsletter, he told this story about Alexi McCammond. And he was, he's in this weird space, this writer is, he's thinking about uh, blacklisting in the 50s and kind of Russian-American, Soviet-American thing. It's this whole weird thing. And he says, as a part of that, he brings up Alexi McCammond. And I was like, I don't know who this is. And the story about this young woman, she's a young woman, mid-20s, rising star in journalism, a young black woman, and she is absolutely just taking the journalism world by storm. And Condé Nast is the publishing company, like the most prestigious publishing company in the world. And they made her editor, they put her in charge of Teen Vogue magazine, which for someone in their mid-20s is like a huge deal. So she is this ascendant, you know, rising star of journalism. Now, what happens when somebody achieves any level of success is people begin to look for a way to bring them down. And so people look into her history, and it comes to light that years ago, like a decade earlier, high school age, that she had gotten a bad grade on a math test, and had sent derogatory tweets related to Asian people because the teacher's assistant was Asian. So what happens in that moment is, is they, those came to light at some point, and she had apologized for her previous error. She had deleted all those things. Condé Nast was aware of these tweets, allegations. They were aware of this when they hired her. Yes, we see it's way in the past. It's fine. But the employees of Teen Vogue were not aware so they announce her hiring, and it's a big celebration. She's a rising star, and how lucky are we to have her? And the employees somehow find out her skeletons in the closet, and they drag those same tweets out, and they start to boycott, and they protest, and they get advertisers from the magazine to say, we will not advertise with your magazine anymore if you don't get rid of her. They blew her up. She apologized again for her youthful indiscretions, and it was too late because it's 2021 and cancel culture had arrived. So don't get all frothy. This is not a political thing. Cancel is a politically charged, where everything's politically charged these days. I could care less. I don't care about the political implications of any of that. I don't even know what they actually might even be. What I'm wanting to address here is thoughtfulness and nuance and repentance and redemption, which is ultimately rooted in kindness. See, what we call shame culture, or what we call cancel culture, is really just shame culture. It's an attempt to heap shame on someone else, therefore making ourselves feel a little bit better. And it's, it's asinine is what it is. And so Malcolm Gladwell, in the same newsletter where he tells this story, he then uh, posts screenshots of some of his uh, tweets in relationship. And I'm just going to share them with you because they were so brilliant and wonderful that we're just going to look at them. And I'm going to just read them because I think they're that great. So Malcolm Gladwell, who used to work for Condé Nast and is the star of journalism, says, uh, another question, what message do you think it sends the readers of Teen Vogue that something dumb you say as a teenager can ruin your career? Will Teen Vogue be addressing this? No answer. 
Another question, do they have a formal position on the process of adolescent moral development, or are they just reading their Twitter feed? No answer. Next. Uh, what is the cutoff age for dumb things said in childhood? Is it 15? Is it 13? Are we accountable for offensive Halloween costumes worn in middle school? No answer. Next, if they don't believe there's a meaningful distinction between adolescence and adulthood, will they now be shutting down Teen Vogue? That was clever, right? I thought that was good. Next. He keeps going. He's obsessed. Do they believe that people can meaningfully apologize for past misdeeds? If not, why not? If so, what does an acceptable apology look like under their rules? Next one, can they provide the baffled readers of their publications the academic and scholarly references used to reach their novel interpretation of adolescent character development? No answer. That's incredible. This is a guy who uh, Malcolm Gladwell is, uh, would say he believes in Jesus. If he was a, a resident of Bowling Green, he would not come to our church. We would be much too conservative theologically for him. So the world would call him a progressive, I would call him a Christian, and somewhere in between there, there's circles and they meet up in the middle and somewhere in there. But he's not one to, to go and fight on the side of, of the Fox News world. That's not him. And yet here he is, like taking cancel culture to task. And you go, okay, this is different. And he's not doing it in a way that's in any way uh, demeaning for them. He's just asking rational, thoughtful, nuanced questions, and there are no answers because shame doesn't want to answer any of those questions. Shame wants to tear down, whereas what Gladwell seems to be arguing for and what I think the Scripture really does argue for is that kindness does something different. It's not an argument about consequences of our previous behavior. It's an argument about thoughtfulness. Our moral vocabulary is too impoverished these days to have that conversation black and white, right and wrong, this guy's good, that guy's bad, this lady's great, that lady's terrible. Kindness invites a dialogue. In erasing shame and guilt, we actually get to the betterment of the other by having a, a true dialogue. Shame and guilt seek to inflict pain as punishment, to condemn as a way of moral one-upmanship, and there's no offer to repent or grow or change, none of it. It's just shame. So I would say it this way, guilt and shame cast out. Kindness invites in. You have to look at the world you live in. Guilt and shame cast people out, and kindness invites them in. Someone walks in those doors, and they have all the reasons to feel guilty and to be ashamed of their life. Whatever that sin struggle is that you would go, oh, we can't have people like that. Kindness says, come on and sit with me. Guilt and shame says you got to get your life figured out before you come into this place. And Jesus addressed this over and over and over again with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were shame-based. You can't deal with the prostitute. You can't deal with the sinner. You can't deal with a leper. You can't deal with a tax collector. Do you see what they've done? And Jesus would say, this is not about that. You're living in a shame world that keeps people out, and Jesus was living in a kindness world that continues to invite them in for restoration. Kindness is one of the most radical things we can possess is one of the most radical ways we can move throughout the world. Waves of kindness would change the world. But it takes nuance and thoughtfulness. Kindness is imbued with grace and mercy, and it creates a virtuous cycle. Apply grace to confession. Someone were to confess a sin, to, to bring that sin struggle out into the light and go, this is what I struggle with. Kindness applies grace there. 
which does what? Removes the shame and guilt, which does what? Allows that confession to be safe, which does what? Invites another round of confession when the time comes, which does what? Brings about more grace and more kindness, which does what? Brings about more confession and more grace and more kindness and more confession. And all of a sudden, everything is out in the light and we live in honesty and authenticity with each other. Had Alexei McCammon been shown grace, what would that have said to the world? It might encourage others to bring their past indiscretions to light to come clean about who they were or who they're becoming, to find grace for the changes and the growing and the restoration that we go through in life. Instead, the warning of the lesson of the way that she was treated is if you have something to hide in the past, you better hide it really good. Because we're going to find it. And when we find it, we're going to get you. Does that encourage confession? Does that encourage people to show kindness to each other? Does that encourage the virtuous cycle? No, that's a vicious cycle of shame and guilt and stuffing it down and hiding in a place where no one will ever find it, which doesn't bring about change and repentance and restoration and hope. It just brings about hopelessness. We just hide more brokenness. So the question for us as we talk about kindness is, are we a people committed to grace and hope or shame and judgment? As you walk about the world, are you more committed to grace and to hope, and to dialogue, and to nuance, and to thoughtfulness, and to kindness, inviting others into the grace of the gospel? Or is your first inclination judgment? Is kindness something you're growing in? Which sort of brings us to faithfulness. Because it's also rooted in selflessness. It's also this others-focused idea. And I actually want to speak to faithfulness personally. Faithfulness is a word we use in marriage. It's, it's, it's marriage, faithfulness, it's always a thing. Traditional wedding vows are really great at this. Wedding vows have changed a little bit. I don't know if you've noticed. But they used to be to have and to hold, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, Till death do us part. We don't like death very much in our culture, so now we say, as long as we both shall live or die. Um, <laughs> that's why people don't ask me to do their weddings. <laughs> he was super depressing about the whole thing. Like, yep, well, it's going to get worse. Um, <laughs> I just skip all the good parts. All right, to have and to hold for worse and sicker and poorer. I don't know. It's not going to be good, guys. Are you sure you want to do this? And then, like, oh. <laughs> if anyone has any reason these two should not be married, and I'm just there, like, me again? Okay. Just kidding. Not totally. Marriage is great. Marriage is fun. What do our vows say? The vow, that traditional set of vows, says essentially this there is no circumstance I can imagine where I am not going to pursue faithfulness with you. That's all it says. There is not a circumstance that exists that will cause me to give up my undying faithfulness to you. That's what the vow is. It's a promise we make. We don't say to have and to hold as long as our romance is strong and our needs are met and circumstances don't stress me out, as long as I don't get bored with you or learn all of the things about you that are aggravating that I didn't know until we got married and had to live with you. That was, oh, we don't say that. I wish 
you know, and sometimes there's some marriages of like, oh, you might as well say that. And I wish that was funny, but it's actually what we think going into marriage often. We're like, hey, this is about me. And it, you know, you complete me. That, that whole thing is like, that's about me still. In the Christian view of marriage is I die for you. I lay my life down for you. I give up anything and everything I am for you, regardless of circumstance. And yet faithfulness in our modern, modern world has become circumstantial. My wife and I have had a circumstance. I did not run this by her, so you can feel uh, sorry for her. We've had a circumstance. We're not the only ones who've gone through circumstances, uh, but our, our medical and our health circumstance in our family has been real for the last couple of years. Uh, we've been through some medical trials. I will uh, illustrate them using this slide. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to explain that. Just leave that there. Kids, you're in the room. Kids, um, by show of hands, you go to a water park. Um, the best thing at the water park is that the, like the twisty slides the log ride, or the wave pool. Okay, ready? I just want to see your hands. Twisty slide. Who's voting for twisty slide? Okay. Who's voting for log ride? Log ride? Those are kind of old school. Who's voting for wave pool? All right. I think wave pool won by just a little bit. Okay. Wave pool it is. All right. Well, this slide represents my wife's GI tract. <laughs> I'm so sorry. GI tract has all those rides. We got the slide, the log ride, the wave pool, all of it. Um, what this represents, and I'm going to leave it there because it's funny, but it's, it's real. Um, we've gone through a couple of years of like excruciating pain for my wife. As things not of her own doing, heredity and all these other things have conspired to create um, deep medical trauma. And, and in multiple different hospital visits and multiple different stays and multiple different crises and, and vacations cut short and children with strange memories about the vacation house where we kind of walked in. We went to the same house this year as we went to last year, and they walked in. Everybody was real quiet. Like, this is like the scene of the crime last year. Well, here's the thing. My vow to my wife was in sickness and in health. My vow was, I will faithfully walk with you no matter if times are good, whether you have perfect health or intestinal drama. I don't, I don't get to choose. So related to that, I'm going to admit something. This will not surprise you. There's very little romance in preparing for a colonoscopy. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> it's just it's not much there. It's a wave pull and a log ride and a twisty slide all in one generally exhausting kind of season. And it comes with every procedure, every new thing we walk through together, every, every scope that goes down, every... CT scan that says, what is this issue? Every one of those brings with them not just the exhaustion of I'm still going through this, but it comes with the fear of what if it's the worst. Those are not exactly the places where uh, candlelight and R&B slow jams start playing in the background. Those are places where you hold each other and you cry. And yet those are the places where love thrives because faithfulness grows love. And if it all comes back to love, and it does all come back to love, then my wife's health season has been one of the greatest blessings of our marriage because it has bound us tighter together because it shows her that my love for her is not circumstantial, that I'm not circumstantially faithful because there is no personal short-term gratification in making sure we can accurately describe stool or see another doctor or find another specialist 
but that's been our last couple of years. And some of you are uncomfortable hearing about it in church. But that's where we've been. And it's a hassle, and it's a burden, and it's financially stressful, and it has been so good because it allows me to grow in and evidence faithfulness, to display my faithfulness, which is the evidence of the Spirit of God living in me, which doesn't make sense. And that growing faithfulness then grows our love, and that becomes a virtuous cycle because at every turn, we just are growing closer and we're getting stronger. And even though things around us may be breaking down, or even though our bodies as we get older start faltering, the love gets stronger through faithfulness. Lest you get confused, I am not the illustration here. We only know what faithfulness looks like because Christ first showed us. Jesus showed me kindness like no other, mercy and grace in his life and his death and his resurrection on my behalf and your behalf. I was buried in my own sin, and the gospel essentially is this, that Jesus Christ saw me buried in in my own sin, and dug me out, pulled me out, dusted me off, and then got in the grave himself. Took on my place, took on my punishment, took on all of my shame, and he doesn't want me to take it back. He took it. And his kindness in that moment when it came to a realization in my heart and my soul, when I was finally affected by the grace of Jesus, I went, how could I resist? the kind of kindness that pulls me out of the grave and takes the grave for himself, the kind of kindness that says your shame is no more because of my sacrifice. Jesus is the picture of faithfulness. When we are wayward, Jesus stays straight. When we are chaos, Jesus brings peace. When we are not fun to love or worthy of affection, Jesus stays the course. He never wavers. That's my story. That is your story. So the question becomes, what if I want more kindness in my life? What if I want to live that out in my everyday? What if I want to be more faithful in my everyday life? How do I live that out? Do I need to go through radical health circumstances with loved ones? Not necessarily, but it won't hurt. How do I have more kindness and faithfulness in my life? In a real general way, I would say when you lean into your design and you follow your designer, when you follow Jesus and you learn from him and you lean into him and you listen to him and you begin to live like him and serve others like him, following in the way of Jesus, it is nearly impossible not to become more kind and more faithful because it is affecting when you receive it on a daily basis. If you start every day recognizing the kindness of Jesus in your life, it is really hard not to carry that kindness into your day. People say, that's great. That doesn't feel as practical. I don't know what to do with that. Let me be more practical. Two of the formational practices that I will prescribe for growing in these aspects of Christian character are secrecy and service. Secrecy is a spiritual discipline. Did you know that? Secrecy seems like something we shouldn't want to be a part of. Like, oh, that's secrets. Friends don't keep secrets. Sometimes they do. Secrecy and service are two of the spiritual disciplines, the formational practices that I would prescribe to people going, I want to grow in kindness and in faithfulness. Secrecy just means this, do something for someone and then don't tell anyone. 
Maybe don't even tell them. Like maybe if you do something really good for someone else, you don't have to put it on social media. And if you don't put it on social media and you don't tell the person you're going to do it for them, but you just do it anyway, you don't get gratification from the act. You're just doing it because you were designed to do it. And there's something radically different about that. There's something radically different about the thing I do that I can get credit for on the outside and the thing I do that no one will ever find out about. One is driving me deeper into kindness and faithfulness. The other is driving me more, frankly, into selfishness, into the gratification loop that comes with I get rewarded when I do nice things as society might judge me. So try to do something this week for which you will get no credit. And learn to do it because it's what you were designed to do, not because it benefits you. So maybe two things this week. Number one, revisit your story. Where were you? What does your grave look like? What does your buried in sin look like? What were the things that plagued you? What is the pride that held you down? What are the habits that you couldn't get rid of? What is that? And then where did God's kindness and faithfulness interrupt your story and turn you into a different direction? Ask Jesus to show you that this week, specifically and personally. And if it feels goofy to sit up first thing in the morning and go, Jesus, show me your kindness. Remind me of where I was. Jesus, show me. And you hear silence, that's a good start. And do it again the next day and again the next day. So that's part one. Part two, practice secret service. Send an unsigned note of encouragement with no return address. No one will ever know. Deliver cookies to somebody for no reason and don't ever acknowledge that you did it. Maybe mow your neighbor's yard while they're at work then clean your lawnmower so they can't ever blame you for doing it. What could you do that no one would ever find out about? These are the practices that make us kinder. These are the things that deepen the well and the reservoir within us that leads us into greater kindness and faithfulness. When we find ourselves on the way with Jesus, we find a heart like his. We find that the Spirit is truly living in us, and that Spirit starts to bear fruit. And kindness leads to repentance, and it changes hearts, and it opens eyes, and it interrupts the vicious cycle of shame and condemnation. And so if you are frustrated with the world around you, apply more kindness. Because it's how Jesus approached the world around him that was as brutal and as judgmental and as religious as any we've ever known. And Jesus didn't come with a sword. He came with sacrifice. And that kindness changed the course of history and eternity. The challenge to you is that you might grow in that kindness this week, that you might lean into faithfulness more, a faithfulness that loves in any circumstance. And in doing so, we might invite ourselves into a virtuous cycle of growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your kindness. Remind us where we were. Remind us who we were in the moment that you found us, in the moment that you rescued us and redeemed us. Father, for those that are still finding themselves hiding in shame and living in guilt, I pray that you would release them today. Today wouldn't be a, a day where it seems to be for somebody else, but Lord, maybe today your kindness needs to just be received. 
that when you took our shame and our pain to the cross, you did not intend for us to take it back. So Father, remind us of that. That your sacrificial death and your glorious resurrection means that no matter where we are and what we're doing, you are inviting us back into your presence. So Father, we walk into your presence today. We ask you to grow us, to deepen us, to stretch us. Not only that we might become more of who you've called us to be, but that we might display it for the world around us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his story and his sacrifice and what it means about who we are. Father, we lift this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.